Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. With this chapter, we bring Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthians to a close. As we've talked about several times now, the letters we have in our Bibles are actually the second and fourth letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote a first letter that is referred to in what we call 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote the severe letter, which we've spoken about many times. And then he wrote this letter, likely in the year A.D. 56. A major reason for writing this letter was to prepare the congregation for his upcoming visit. It would be his third visit to them, and he wanted it to be a positive experience for everyone, himself included. There had been some misunderstandings in the past, so Paul writes to provide some clarity as to the decisions he has made in the conduct of his ministry among them. What may have looked like weakness was, in the case of his abbreviated prior visit, in fact, an act of patience and gentleness. Paul wanted to give them some time to sort things out. Harsh discipline is not the go-to response of a mature leader. Paul wants to teach. He wants them to ponder, and he wants to leave room for the Spirit of God to work. And only then, after all of that, will he resort to discipline if it is still required. Now, does that make me weak? Paul asks, or does that make me gentle and wise? And then, of course, as we've talked about in the last couple of episodes, Paul needed to speak at some length as to the nature and basis of true Christian leadership. Christian leadership is not a strongman competition, nor is it a clash of magicians. It isn't as though the man with the loudest voice or the most amazing miracle story gets to be in charge. That isn't how things work in the kingdom of God. We follow the crucified Christ, so very often, down is the way up. Weakness is the place where we encounter strength. Frailty is frequently transformed into opportunity. These are all characteristics of what theologians sometimes call the cruciform life. I cited Michael J. Gorman in the introductory episode saying, What unifies the shifting rhetoric of 2 Corinthians is its ultimate focus on the spirit-filled cruciform shape of transformed life in Christ, close quote. That's what Paul has been talking about, and that is what he is going to continue to talk about during his upcoming visit with them. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here Paul is saying that His three visits correspond to the general principle of careful inquiry reflected in the Old Testament law. We don't deal in rumor and casual accusation here in the covenant community. Rather, we deal in established truth. And so, Paul says, I've been very patient and thorough in my oversight. Verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, 
but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul here is careful to clarify that patience is not weakness. A concern for process is not weakness. There's a certain type of personality who feels that boldness is the ultimate proof of one's suitability for leadership. But by that criteria, a dog would make a wonderful leader. Dogs are fabulously bold and as such often bark and howl at everyone who passes by. But I hope we would all agree that we need more than the boldness of dogs in the household of faith. There is a need for wisdom. There's a need for prudence. There is a need for discernment. So I have been very slow about all of this, haven't I, Paul says. I've been very slow and also very clear. And now, having been patient and clear, it is time to settle our accounts, which I will do when I arrive among you. In verses 3 to 4 here, Paul makes clear that there is both weakness and power in the Christian ministry, just as there is both weakness and power to be seen in the earthly life of Christ. Yes, he died on the cross, but he also rose again from the dead in triumph on the third day. So, to embrace weakness is not to deny power. I've been speaking about my weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong. But that isn't to glorify weakness with respect to overcoming sin. Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore the power of resurrection is at work in all true believers, causing them to leave their sin and their works of darkness behind. The bloody cross and the empty tomb Both must inform our approach to life and ministry. The cross reminds us to expect suffering and to embrace lowliness, while the empty tomb teaches us to expect vindication and to anticipate power to overcome all that is evil and dead. Therefore, Paul says in verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my own use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So here the Apostle Paul turns the tables on them, so to speak. They've been seeking proof that Christ is in him, but the real issue is whether or not they can provide evidence that the Lord is at work in them. Because if he is, then they should be leaving their sin behind. Just as they follow the crucified Christ, so too they follow the risen Christ. And therefore, there ought to be evidence of progressive freedom from the power of sin. Real believers experience freedom from the penalty of sin immediately and freedom from the power of sin progressively over the course of their Christian lives. So where is the evidence of that? That's the real question, Paul says. And I hope you're asking that question. Of course, everyone should be asking that question. Every person who believes that they're a true believer, that they're a Christian, should be looking for evidence to support that assumption. After all, Jesus said, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's Matthew 7, 21 to 23. So according to Jesus, many people who sincerely believe that they are born-again Christians are not. They are not. They, they think they are. They believe they are. They, they will get angry at anyone who suggests that they may not be, but they are not. And they will hear these words from Jesus on the last day. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, obviously then, you should do everything humanly possible to make sure that it isn't you having that experience on Judgment Day, as should I, as should everyone who considers themselves a Christian. We all should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We should test ourselves. Charles Hodge, in his commentary, says here, to examine and to test mean the same thing. Both express the idea of trying or putting to the test to ascertain the nature or character of the person or thing tried, close quote. So what would that have meant precisely for the Corinthians in this particular scenario? What would demonstrate the reality of their faith? Most commentators identify two things. First of all, and most immediately, they would need to be reconciled to the Apostle Paul. As Paul Barnett puts it, if the Corinthians reject Paul as Christ's apostle, they reject themselves as apostolic, closed quote. You can't reject the apostle Paul's authority as a spokesperson of Jesus Christ and call yourself a Christian. That's not a thing, despite that people have been trying to do that ever since the first century, as indeed there are many people trying to do it still today. That's not an option. You can't reject the messengers of the king and believe yourself to be in good relationship with the king. The messengers speak for the king. So to reject the message they carry is to reject the king's authority over you. And that will not be well received. And so that's the first thing. The Corinthians need to be fully reconciled to their apostle. And then also, given the context, it clearly means that they need to have renounced the sort of shameful practices described by Paul at the end of chapter 12. He said in verse 20, when I get there, I don't want to find quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. If you're really saved, then you're going to be moving away from those things, not settling down into those things. There's no such thing as a Christian who has made peace with sin. A real Christian is recognizing the authority of God's word and is renouncing all the works of the flesh by the power of the Spirit in them. So that, that's a pretty good test right there. So test yourself, Paul says, to see if you are in the faith before I arrive, lest I be forced to make use of my authority as your apostle to purify the church of any unrepentant elements. Now, Paul does not desire to enforce his authority, but he is perfectly willing to do so should it become necessary. I really appreciate the comment by Mark Seifert here about Paul's potential use of authority. I want you to hear it, because there may be some folks leaning in here thinking, finally, some biblical justification for the use of harsh authority. Well, hold on. Listen to what Seaford says here. He says, 
He follows his threat of severity, putting in brackets there, chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, with an appeal to them to judge themselves so that he might avoid a confrontation with them. He is not concerned with his own triumph, but with their healing and wholeness in Christ, close quote. So again, we ought to be impressed by how hard Paul works not to exercise severe authority. Brothers and sisters, beware the leader who defaults to the use of harsh authority. Now, is, is there a place for that? Yes, but not early and not often. Paul threatens to use his authority only after an exhaustive process involving multiple visits, multiple letters, plenty of time, hours of prayer, buckets of tears, and plenty of instruction and education. He does not rush to the lash. And if he doesn't, uh, given his standing as an apostle and his inspired understanding of Christian life and doctrine, how much more should we modern-day pastors and elders be careful and thorough and prayerful and patient in our processes of correction and our potential applications of authority? Woe to the church saddled with a leader who is incapable of using authority, and woe to the church saddled with a leader who is eager to use authority. What you want is a leader, or actually leaders, what you want are leaders, plural, like Paul, who are cautious and careful and patient and prayerful in the use of their authority. You want leaders, like Paul, who are resolved to use their authority for building up and not for tearing down. Verse 11, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul will often end his letters with a flurry of brief exhortations. Consider, for example, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14. There he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. So here, Paul ends the letter with five commands or exhortations, followed very appropriately by the promise that God will be with you. The commands are rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Now, the first of those is fairly obvious. Christians are supposed to be characterized by joy. We can rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's Romans 5, 3-5. The second command here is for them to aim for restoration. This one isn't quite as obvious because there's no one English word that adequately captures the sense of the particular Greek word that Paul uses here. That challenge is reflected in the diversity of modern translations. As we've just heard, the ESV translates this command as aim for restoration. The New American Standard Bible translates it as be made complete. The Greek word Paul uses means to complete or mend or repair or make perfect. Paul seems to be saying that the chaos in their community stems from their immaturity as believers. Charles Hodge, again, is helpful here. He says that the apostle is saying, in essence, reform yourselves, correct the evils that prevail within and among you, close quote. He tells them next to comfort one another or be encouraged. There's a margin note in the ESV suggesting that it could even mean listen to my appeal. 
And I think that's right. And it follows very nicely upon what Paul has just said about correcting the evils that prevail among them. And it flows nicely into what he says next. The fourth imperative here is translated by the ESV as agree with one another. So let's all get on the same page here. You with me and you with each other. And then finally, he says, live in peace. Peace comes from agreement in the apostolic gospel. There is no peace in apostasy, no peace in rebellion, no peace apart from reunion with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, as preached by his authorized emissaries and representatives. As you pursue these things, be assured that the God of love and peace will be with you. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. As was customary in Greco-Roman correspondence at the time, at the end of the letter, various greetings are now encouraged and expressed. Greet one another. The saints greet you, etc. The church was a family. And even though, as in any family, there may be issues to work through, there should also be love. And so Paul ends here on that affectionate note. Verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Of course, many Bible readers will know that this passage is held in high regard because it is one of the few places in the New Testament where all three persons of the Trinity are referred to at the same time. Gordon Fee even goes so far as to refer to it as the most profound theological moment in the Pauline corpus, close quote. Whether you share Fee's sentiment or not, it cannot be denied that this is a significant statement. For as Karl Barth said famously, Trinity is the Christian name for God. Now, while the word Trinity isn't used in the New Testament, all the constituent elements are easily found. The Bible, of course, communicates that the Father is God, and the New Testament abounds with texts affirming that the Son is God, and then there are many passages that clearly communicate that the Spirit is God, and equally there are passages that make clear that the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. So, there is distinction, and yet there is one God. That's the Trinity. And, and so the doctrine is there even if the word is not. Here in this passage, we see that Paul has an entirely Trinitarian understanding of the gospel. It is not something done by Jesus to placate the Father. No, it is something that comes from the Father that is enacted by the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Within the context of the letter itself, Paul is using this prayer as a sort of end bracket, matching what he said to open the letter. After the address line in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have grace at the beginning and grace again here at the end. It is all of grace, brothers and sisters. Therefore, where is boasting? That is a fitting place for this letter to end. The fundamental problem with the Corinthians is that they are very worldly. All their categories are essentially Roman categories. And so Paul reminds them that Christianity is, from start to finish, a work of God. It is grace. It comes down to us. It does not arise from us. So yes, it looks a little different. Yes, it diverges from the way of the world. Yes, it confronts some of our desires, excesses, and presuppositions. It is different. It is otherworldly. It is good. 
Christianity isn't going to change to adapt to your preferences and expectations, Paul says. Rather, the Christian faith, if you are really in it, is going to change you from one degree of glory to another into the same image, his image, the image of Christ, the Christ of the bloody cross, and the Christ of the empty tomb. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.